Why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. For a couple weeks we've been in this chapter specifically studying the Lord's Supper. Jesus in the upper room is having one last meal with his disciples. He takes some bread and some wine and he uses them to teach something about his work on the cross, which he will accomplish the very next day. Over the past few weeks, we've been trying to figure out exactly what he was trying to signify with that bread and that cup as his body and his blood. What Jesus said has lasting value for the church. We need to get this right. It's so important that we get this right because the message of the Lord's Supper, it's tied into the gospel itself. If you get this wrong, you get the gospel wrong and vice versa. This is nowhere more evident than with the Catholic Church. The Bible makes clear there are only two established ordinances or ceremonies for the church to observe, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are memorial in nature. They don't save you. They don't contribute to your salvation. But the Catholic Church teaches otherwise. According to the Roman Catholic Church, there are not two ordinances for the church to observe, but rather seven sacraments. And they are essential to your salvation. These seven sacraments are baptism, which establishes the Christian life, confirmation, Eucharist or communion, penance, extreme unction, that's the final anointing of the sick before they die, the holy orders, that's the priesthood, and then matrimony, marriage. The whole life of the church revolves around these seven sacraments, they say, with Eucharist, communion at the very center, that's the heart of the church. Now, even though some of these have biblical underpinnings like marriage, you're not going to find them listed as seven sacraments in the Bible, nor taught as the Catholic Church teaches. These seven sacraments, they weren't even codified or like made formal until the 16th century in the Council of Trent. But there the Catholics were very careful to say, yes, you can't be saved without these. You need these sacraments. The Council of Trent declared that if anyone denies any one of these seven sacraments as the Catholic Church defines it, he or she is anathema. That is, damned. The council also decreed, quote, If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema, end quote. In other words, if you claim that a person is justified or made right with God, not through these sacraments, but just by faith alone, then you're to be damned. You are anathema. That's still Catholic teaching. And that's also still why we're not Catholics. And I don't care about church tradition or the rulings of councils. I want to know what what God has to say about this in his word. And in this case, it's very clear. Romans 3.28 For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the heart of the gospel. It's not about works or ceremonies or rituals. It's about Jesus and his once for all finished work on the cross, which we access by faith. Sadly, though, the Catholic Church over the centuries basically repeated all the errors of Judaism in Christ's day. And along those lines, they have warped the Lord's Supper into Just another one of those rituals. It is a work that you need, whereby the priest takes the the bread, takes the cup, and he transforms them into the literal body and blood of Jesus, which are then re-sacrificed for your sins, and you gain merit by partaking. Of course, you, you need this. You need that priest. 
He's the only one who can transform the elements for you. And you need, you need the Eucharist, you need the elements, because you need a sacrifice for your sins. But over the past two weeks in our study of the Lord's Supper from Scripture, we found this to be far from the truth. You know, we do need a priest, but that's Jesus. He is our great high priest. And we do need a sacrifice, but that's Jesus too. He is our once-for-all finished sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus gave us this communion meal, not as something that contributes to his unfinished work, but as something that reminds us of his finished work on our behalf. The bread, as we learned, is his body, his life. He is the bread of life. He's the only one who can spiritually give life to the world. And that's something we desperately need because we're spiritually starving. We're spiritually dead. But Jesus, the bread of life, can bring you to new and eternal life. And to receive the life that he offers, you have to eat him. Which is to say you have to believe in him. You have to confess him. And that's the significance of the bread. You take, you eat, you believe, and you live. But what about our sin problem? What about the cause of our spiritual death in the first place? Well, that's where the cup comes in, which is his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas the bread represents Christ's life, the cup represents his death. Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered himself on the cross unto death. He died the death that we deserve for our sins. He stood in our place as that perfect substitute sacrifice. And through that death, God enabled us to live, purchased our forgiveness, and established this new covenant where God promised to provide us all the things that we need, like a new heart, his spirit, total forgiveness, eternal life. And again, we access all this by faith. All you have to do is drink the blood, so to speak, which is, again, to believe in him. You must believe in him. Place all of your trust, not in your works, but in his finished work on the cross. And through that faith, God will save you. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. As you take and you eat and you drink, you are remembering Jesus and you're confessing Jesus. You are confessing, I believe in Jesus, the bread of life, the Lamb of God. You are claiming his life for your life, his death for your death. You're saying, I believe. And it is that faith that saves you and that we remember each time we observe. Well, this is where we've been for the past two weeks. We've explained the role of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper. And at this point, you might be thinking, well, I guess I guess we're done. And there's only two elements, the bread, the cup, that's it. So it's time to move on. But we're not quite finished. And it's true, we have tackled the primary significance of the Lord's Supper for the church. The most important aspect of the Lord's Supper is us remembering what Jesus did for us in relationship to God, how he reconciled us to God. He mended our vertical relationship. But that being said, Jesus reconciling us to God has a very significant byproduct. And here's what I mean. Jesus, you know, through his work, he reconciled us to God. He enabled us to be the children of God. God is now our Heavenly Father. We are his children. But think about that. If God is my father and God is your father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. And so you see, through his work of redemption, as he reconciled us to God by nature, he was also reconciling us to one another. And guess what? 
The Lord's Supper is intentionally designed to reflect this. The Lord's Supper, yes, it primarily reminds us of how the Lord brought us back to himself from spiritual death to spiritual life. But it's also intended to show us that we haven't been brought back alone. We've been redeemed alongside others. And because of what Jesus did, we are now actually one with them. Jesus gave his body for us. Now we are his body, his one body. So as you can start to see, there is actually another layer to the Lord's Supper, a very practical layer that bears a huge impact on the life of the church. And it is worth our time, our effort, one more week to explore this further layer. And that's what we're going to do this morning. This morning we'll be revisiting this passage one last time. Now from the angle of what communion signifies for our relationship with one another. God was pleased to reconcile us to himself. He's also pleased to reconcile us to one another. We need to figure that out. We need to understand our unity in Christ. We need to preserve our unity in Christ. And we need to display our unity in Christ. Because actually this is meant to have a huge impact on the church and the world. Our unity. So we're in Mark 14, verses 22 through 26, one last time. And let's begin, in case you haven't been with us the past two weeks, let's begin by reading the passage once again, Mark 14, 22 through 26. Verse 22 begins and says, While they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, two weeks ago, we spent a whole sermon technically on point number one, understanding the bread. In the last week, we spent a whole additional sermon on technically point number two, understanding the cup. And this morning, as you can guess, we'll be spending the sermon on point number three, understanding communion. Understanding communion. Let's begin in verse 25, which we actually haven't looked at yet in detail. Let's get things going this morning looking at verse 25. Again, he says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This verse is like a little ray of sunshine sunshine that's penetrating through this dark, gloomy cloud. Because so far in Christ's final week, there's been this dark cloud that's followed him around, very foreboding. At the beginning of the week, he made reference to his coming burial, which obviously implies his death. He told his guys, like, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. They didn't want to believe it, that the Messiah could die, but here he is at the beginning of that week, referencing his death. It doesn't look good. Fast forward to his final night. Jesus now announces that one of them will betray him. So not only is he going to die soon, but one of them is going to hand him over. It's, it's depressing news. It's discomforting news, discouraging news. That dark cloud just grows larger. And then even with the Lord's Supper itself, there's a note of gloom. Because he takes that cup, he says, this is my blood, poured out for many. That's another reference to his death. Indeed, he will 
die the next day. His blood will be shed on the cross. But for the disciples, this is still inconceivable. They can't imagine how the Messiah could die. It still doesn't fit. Their eyes haven't been opened to the bigger picture behind God's plan where the Messiah dies not to deliver us from Rome, but to deliver us from sin and Satan and death. And for that, Jesus has to die. He must die. He has to be that suffering servant bearing the sins for the many. He has to be the Passover lamb, the substitute in our place. The disciples, they so desperately want the kingdom to begin right now. But they don't get it. If Jesus doesn't die, there's not going to be anyone in the kingdom. It'll be empty. He has to redeem. Soon they will come to understand this. But for now, verse 25 is that little ray of hope where he's telling them that even though, yes, he, the Messiah, he's going to die, but his death is not a defeat. And even still, his death, it's still a victory. His life will be poured out, but he will live again. And they will be together with him in the kingdom one day. And with this, Jesus transformed the whole atmosphere of the upper room from doom and gloom to glory. Though they can't see it yet, he will die victoriously. He will rise victoriously and he will bring the kingdom victoriously and they will partake. Now speaking of partaking, Jesus specifically says in this verse that he will not partake of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it new in the kingdom. So what what exactly does that all mean? Well, first, I think there's some interesting background that we can legitimately bring to bear on on this passage. For the past two weeks, I've referenced how Jesus and the disciples were, in all likelihood, they were observing that traditional Jewish Passover Seder meal. You recall that? And of note in that Seder meal were these four cups of wine, drunk periodically throughout the night. The first cup opened the meal. The second cup was drunk after the telling of the Passover story. The third cup was was drunk after the meal itself, the supper. And then the fourth cup was drunk after the singing of the Hallel, and it closed the meal out. These four cups of wine. Why four cups? Well, they represent the four promises of God's deliverance in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. There God promised to the Jews, number one, I will bring you out. Number two, I will deliver you. Number three, I will redeem you. Number four, I will take you for my people. Last week, we learned that when Jesus blessed that communion cup, technically it was cup number three of the night. Because Luke tells us it was after supper. Which then we find it's very appropriate. Jesus takes that third cup, which was associated with the promise of redemption, and he attaches it to himself. That third cup came with the message where God said, I will redeem you. And Jesus is showing them, here's how God will redeem you. This cup is my blood. That's how God will redeem you. Now, after this third cup, they would sing the Hallel. That's a series of six psalms in the Old Testament, Psalms 113 through 118. They declare the loving kindness of God. And then finally, they'd finish this very traditional meal with that fourth cup of wine. That's how it should have happened. Now, here's what's pretty interesting. Jesus, the disciples, they drink that third cup. Okay, we, we learned about that. After they drink the cup, they sing the Hallel. That's right on schedule. Look at verse 26. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that hymn was almost certainly Psalm 118, most likely. And after that, what happened? Well, then 
they left. They departed to the Mount of Olives where Jesus would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, wait a second, what happened to that fourth cup of wine? I mean, they're following the order. They're supposed to drink that that fourth cup. Where'd it go? They didn't drink it. There's no mention of it in any of the Gospels. Their Passover meal is described as concluding with that halal, those songs, not the fourth cup of wine. So, So where'd it go? The answer is that Jesus and the disciples, they never drank that fourth cup on purpose. Jesus delayed the fourth cup on purpose. I believe Jesus is referring to the fourth cup in verse 25. We can't be dogmatic with this background, but all signs point to yes. Look look again at verse 25. He says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When Jesus says these words, they still have one more cup of wine to go in their meal. But Jesus was here committing to abstinence. He's like, I'm not going to drink that fourth cup or anything. This is his last meal after all. Why not? What did that fourth cup signify? That fourth cup was used to represent the consummation. That promise where God would finally take them for his people. He would be their God. It's that full promise of restoration, fellowship restored, God with man together again in full. Jesus, he doesn't throw out the fourth cup as if it won't happen. It will happen, but not at that moment. First, Jesus still must die. The disciples are desperately longing for that kingdom fellowship. But there's not going to be any kingdom to be in if Jesus doesn't die for their sins. So this fourth cup of consummation is delayed. It is delayed until after the cross and then some. After the cross, even, Jesus will not bring in the kingdom in full like they expected. He must die. He must rise. He must ascend. And then he will leave them for some time. In fact, we're still living in the age where the Lord is with us, but we're not with the Lord. We are not with God in full. We're still waiting for him to come back, waiting for the day when he brings the kingdom, the consummation. In this regard, though, that last meal, that last supper, that last Passover, it's, it's still not finished. It's an unfinished meal. And it won't be finished until Jesus comes back. It's like we're left waiting for this messianic banquet. And the Bible actually talks about that. You know, over in Revelation 19, describing the Lord and his second coming, and, and concurrent with that, What do we find taking place? This great messianic banquet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day as the kingdom comes, all of the redeemed will be with Christ together forever. The church, the bride, will be complete and united to the Lord once for all. And it will be on that day when all the redeemed will partake of that cup, so to speak, together. And then finally, in the true sense of the word, We will be God's people and he will be our God once and for all. Overall, then, we find verse 25, it just, it gives us hope and anticipation. It transforms the apparent defeat of Jesus on the cross into victory. He didn't die defeated. He died victoriously, even though he still died and he rose and he will come back. He defeated sin and Satan and death on the cross and in him, so do we. This is our victory, our hope. In our anticipation, we long for him to return. We will share that communion with him 
forever. So this is the, the primary impact of verse 25, a remembrance of what, again, what Jesus did for us. Now, that said, without taking away from that, now I want to continue by exposing you, like I said earlier, to the byproduct of all that. So that's what, that's what Jesus does for us, how he reconciles us, how he will return for us. But again, I mentioned there's this byproduct to all that. And that byproduct is our unity with one another. And this actually comes out in what Jesus is saying here. Look again at verse 25. I'm actually going to read for you, though, the parallel in Matthew. Matthew tells a slightly longer version where Jesus includes a few key words. Just listen to this. Matthew 26, verse 29. It's the same, same verse where he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He adds those words with you that just Mark just left out. But Jesus makes explicit, he's not going to be drinking this cup in the kingdom alone. He will be drinking it with, with you, with his disciples, with all of his disciples from all time. He will come back for his bride, the church, the one body made perfect by him. And together we will be drinking this last cup, this meal together. Where? In the Father's kingdom. We will all be his children. He will be our father. We will therefore be brothers and sisters. So we can already start to see that as Jesus redeems us, as he reconciles us to God, by nature he's reconciling us to one another. And more than reconcile, he's knitting us together. He binds us together. He's forming us into one body. This is true to the fullest in the kingdom. But it's even true now. It's, it's already expressed now because of what Jesus did for us. We are right now already one body. The unity of the people of God is also expressed in the cup from verse 23, the cup of communion that we would call it. You know, significance, did you notice? There's only one cup. And that was not on accident. He takes one cup, pronounces a blessing, gives it to them, and it says they all drank from it. They all shared the same cup. And that was actually uncommon, that they would all share the same cup in this Passover meal. But that's what Jesus wanted on purpose. Like he says in Luke 22, 17, he says, take this, share it among yourselves. There's only one cup, because there's only one Savior. There's only one saving blood. And to be saved, you've got to drink that cup. You have to wash in his blood, so to speak. But the byproduct of that, when you share that cup of Christ... With him, the byproduct is you're, you're actually also sharing it with, with one another, with, with everyone else, all the other believers. This was, and still is, culturally significant. You know, drinking from someone's cup meant entering into a communion with that person of sorts. Sharing a cup signified you know, a relationship. You have some sort of good relationship with that person. still does. Now, as a side note, I've got to tell you, I'm not the person... To share cups with others? It's just not me. I remember back in my school days, guys would pass around like a cup of a can of soda and everyone would just like take a drink from it. And I always thought that is that's nasty. Especially because the lid of the soda can just catches all that backwash. That's not for me. I would always secretly make sure I took the first drink. So technically I'm not sharing with anybody. But you know, it's interesting. I've never put much thought into this until now, but I've never minded sharing a cup with my wife, Angel. 
never bothered me, probably for obvious reasons. But even the other day, our daughter Olivia, she took a, a drink from my cup of water. And if someone else did that, it's just going in the dishwasher. But I looked at it, I was like, meh, not that big of a deal. And, and I drank from it anyway. And for me, it's not a germ thing. I, I, I don't care about bacteria. It's just maybe it's a relationship thing. Like I know this person. I know where they came from. And it's kind of intangible. You can call me weird. But you get the point. It's still symbolically, symbolically true. Sharing a cup with someone, it's still a sign of a friendship, fellowship, closeness. And as the disciples, as they shared that cup with Jesus, they were entering into communion with him. But then they passed it around. And they were entering into communion with one another as well. Jesus did this intentionally to show that through him, now, you're one. If you're his disciple, you are one with other disciples. Same goes for the bread. He took that piece of bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them. There was one bread, one body. They were all partaking of it. And this knit them together. It's still an, an image of unity, by the way, breaking bread together. It's still a way of showing communion with someone else. Now, just in case you think I'm making this up, the Apostle Paul confirms all these connections with the Lord's Supper over in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's not talking about the actual bread. He's talking about Jesus. There's one Savior. And we partake of him, so we're one. Jesus transformed that old covenant Passover meal into a new covenant Lord's Supper. And primarily, the bread and the cup, they represent our communion with God, what Jesus did for us in relationship to God through his body, through his blood. But they also signify our communion with one another because we're all partaking of the same body, the same bread, the same cup, the same Savior, and that makes us the same body. And speaking of that, it's not a coincidence that not long after that in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that word body and becomes the main metaphor for the church. Jesus took that bread. He said, this is my body given for you. And as a result, now we are his body. We partake of his body. We become his body. He's the head. We're the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He says, verse 27, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. It's such a perfect picture for the church. You have all these super diverse people and they come together as one. You have people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different upbringings, different social statuses, different languages, different giftings. But they all come together as one in this body. They even become interdependent, needing one another to thrive, to function. In the church, you have this beautiful unity among diversity. We don't eliminate diversity. We just unite in spite of it because of Christ. Unity among diversity. And we're held together by the glue of Christ's blood. And that's powerful stuff. It's, it's intentional. 
And again, it's communicated by the Lord's Supper on purpose. There's one bread. There's one cup. We all partake of one Savior. Now we are His one body. No surprise, we live in a divided world, right? This world is is super divided. People will divide for just about anything. Men from women, rich from poor, strong from weak, free from slave. Just everything. Then there's racial division. If you come from someplace different, if you look different, you talk different, others will treat you different, oftentimes with contempt. And maybe you think the solution to humanity's problem is globalization. What if we're just one nation? Then we'd all just get along, right? But you recall once upon a time there was just one nation and just one language before Babel. But yet there was still divisiveness, division, discrimination, even unto death, murder. Why is that? It's because our division, it's merely a reflection of the universal heart problem derived from the fall. After Adam and Eve sinned, they were divided from God. They were also divided from one another. Sin just divides people. That's what it does. And we all inherit the same fallen heart. We're going to be divided. Government can't fix that. Social programs can't fix that. Nothing can fix that except Jesus. The gospel is man's only hope for reconciliation with God and with others. Do you see how faith in Jesus is such a great equalizer? makes everyone the same. Let me explain that like in relation to the Lord's Supper. And when you observe communion rightly, not just some mindless ritual, but you get what it, it means and you, you understand its impact, what are you doing? You are in reality confessing truth and declaring your beliefs. And it starts with yourself. As you take the bread, the cup, you start by reflecting on yourself. You take it because you need it. You realize that before salvation you were lost, you were wicked, you were fallen, desperate, depraved, without hope. Your heart is desperately sick and you need Christ's blood to wash away your sin. You need his body given over for you so that you can live. You have no other hope. And so at salvation you took of him and in communion you remember that and you worship. But there's an element in there where you humble yourself, you recall what he did for you. And if you get that right, It makes you realize that you are no better than the person next to you who's doing the same thing. You know, it may look different on the outside, different skin color, background, language, social status, whatever. But on the inside, you're exactly the same. The same fallen, wicked, depraved, lost heart before salvation. But in Christ, you've been equally redeemed. Made equal, made one. Bowing before Jesus is the only way to see that the brotherhood of man restored. To make us equal. That's what Galatians 3.28 says Jesus does. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't obliterate our distinctions or different roles. But in Christ, we're, we're one. There's a, a real unity among our diversity. That's the power of the gospel. Sin divides, but Jesus reconciles. The gospel reconciles. Jesus unites us to God and he unites us to one another as intended from the beginning. And the Lord's Supper is one of the chief expressions of this. 
It's a living symbol continually reminding us of our oneness with the Lord and with one another. And consider this. Do you remember Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2? Jesus ascends, the Spirit comes, Peter gets up to preach, this big crowd, thousands are saved, 3,000 people get saved. And, and do you remember what happens? Instantly, that they're one. They, the immediate outcome of their salvation, there's this supernatural unity that sweeps over these thousands of different people. And just listen to this, the outcome of, of that time. Acts 2.42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. It's amazing, this twofold mention of breaking bread, most agree that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's just something about a meal that brings people together. And the, the early church, they attached communion to an actual meal. So you'd have very different people who ordinarily, they would never eat with one another. It would just never happen. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans, male and female, rich and poor, free and slave, these, these, were, these segregations, they would never eat a meal with one another. But as the church progressed, as they came to salvation and, and moved forward, they realized there's no high ground at the foot of the cross. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. You're not better than anyone else. Therefore, they ate together. They broke bread together. They remembered the Lord together. They were knit together. And the Lord's Supper is now a real expression of our fellowship and the power of the gospel to change lives in more ways than one. It's not natural, that type of unity. It's supernatural, but so is the gospel. I love how Paul describes our unity in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says there's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. How many more ways can he say it? The church is one. We're one because of what Jesus did. So long as we have the same gospel, the same Lord, the same salvation, despite our other differences, we're one. Now, you might have picked up on it, though, in that passage it said to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Why does it say that? I thought we're one. Well, even though we are one in Christ, our unity can be attacked. It can be diminished, and it certainly is. Sin still divides. So we must fight to preserve the unity we have in Christ. You recall Peter himself wasn't even immune from this. As time went on, there there came a point where Peter kind of lost focus for a little bit. And for a little while, he stopped eating with Gentiles. That division crept back in. If you let it, it'll creep back in. This is why we constantly need the truth. Reminding us, confronting us, setting us straight, uniting us. 
And the Lord's Supper does that. It does just that. It's, it's so important that you get this and you get this right. Do you know that Jesus himself said there's a direct correlation between our unity as a church and our evangelistic impact as the church? Listen to this from John 17. This is a prayer that Jesus gave in that upper room after that supper, right before they departed. He gave this prayer, John 17. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask of these alone, his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He's actually praying for us now. He's praying for his future disciples. And he says, verse 21, he prays that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you get that? Jesus prays that we all, the whole church, that we're one. Why? So that the world may believe that Jesus really is true, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that that God really sent him. Our unity, or lack thereof, has a direct impact on our evangelistic impact. If we're one, the world will see. If we're not, they won't. Are you preserving unity? Do you get this? Do you contribute to the unity of the saints? Or do you detract? Do you pursue unity? Now at this point, if you're tracking along, you might be wondering, okay, it's important. We, we need to do this. How do we do this? How exactly do we preserve this unity? If that's so important, how do we reflect unity in the church to the world? Well, practically speaking, let me, let me leave you with four simple practical ways to preserve the unity of the body. Four ways to preserve the unity of the body. Just, just some food for thought here at the end. Number one, don't forsake fellowship. Don't forsake fellowship. Last week I read from Hebrews 9 and 10. It's very reminiscent of the Lord's Supper because he's telling us about Jesus, our sacrifice, the one who inaugurated the new covenant, very similar to last week's text. And it culminates with this great truth in Hebrews 10, that Jesus, he is our once-for-all sacrifice for all time. He perfects all those who draw near by his blood. And because of him, we don't need any more sacrifices. We no longer need an offering for sin. So it's a great truth. That's, that's a, a massive truth. He's our once-for-all sacrifice, our perfect redeemer. Right after that, the author of Hebrews then gives his inspired application. So how do you apply that truth? Jesus, he's our perfect redeemer. How do you apply that? Well, listen. Just listen. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and following. He says right after that, he says, Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated through us for, uh, for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the application. He says, let us, number one, draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the first application, just draw near to God. Number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Second application, persevere, press on, hold fast. Third, he says, and let us 
consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You catch the last one? He says, let us encourage one another to love, not forsaking the assembly together. One thing is true. Our expression of unity, it's completely thwarted if you don't even show up. If you are never around the body. How can there be unity if you just are never here? If you're never around other Christians? Being detached from the body, just doing your own thing, that is not God's will. That is the exact opposite of God's will. Being a Lone Ranger Christian, you're doing the exact opposite of what God wants you to do. We are one, and he wants us together, facing life together, running the race together. The race is hard. Sometimes you're going to need someone to help you run, or you might need help to run. You can't do that if you're alone. This is a simple but powerful reminder, just be together. So if there's a church event, show up. But don't just show up. Be involved. Invest in one another's lives. Talk to one another. Minister to one another. Encourage one another. And even outside church events, you don't need to wait for a potluck. On your own, pursue unity. Spend time with the saints. Fellowship. Otherwise, our unity has no chance. And bottom line, if you love Jesus, you will love his church. He does. So don't forsake the fellowship. Number two, serve one another. Serve one another. This goes back to 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talked about the unity of the body. The source of our division is selfishness. That's why the world will always divide because in the fallen heart is ruled by the self. Like we once were. But when you come to Christ, he becomes Lord of your life and Lord of your heart. And you realize it's about him. You now serve not yourself. You serve him. You deny self to follow him. And when you do that, that enables you also to serve others. If selfishness divides, service unites. The Lord served us. He brought us to him. That enables us to serve others as well. And nothing will unite you to someone else like serving that person. Just you're not worried about your own interests. You're seeking their interests. You serve them. You will see unity. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. By one spirit... We were baptized into one body. And that same spirit gave us spiritual gifts. And what's the purpose of those spiritual gifts? It's not for ourselves. It's not for you. The purpose is for the body, to minister to the body, to help, to edify, to build up the body. That's the purpose. So just briefly, God has gifted you. Are you using your gifts to serve others? This is how the body is meant to grow. Consider how you fit in. We're all different. You don't have to be a preacher. But how have you been gifted and how are you using it to serve the body? As you do so, you will see the body knit closer together. Number three, treat others as the Lord treated you. I mean, let's face it, though redeemed, we still have this sinful flesh. We wage war, but our sin can still divide us if we let it. That's true, right? Our sin can still divide us if we let it. But you can choose to forgive others and to still love them. When others sin against you, if you, if you fall into pride, 
You want nothing more but to make them pay, and unity's gone. Forget it. It's over. There will be no unity. But if you remember how the Lord treated you in your sins, how he showed you mercy and grace, how he forgave you that debt, even though you didn't deserve it, but he forgave you. Well, then, when others sin against you, you can melt away the wedge of division by choosing to likewise forgive them and show them grace and mercy. Listen to Colossians 3, 9 through 14. He says in salvation, basically, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. He says, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You have to let yourself be controlled by Christ's love. If you've received it, you need to display it to others. Treat them the way that the Lord treated you. Lastly, to finish off, number four, value communion. Value communion. The Lord's Supper, as we've seen, it's not just some meaningless ritual. It has great significance. Primarily to remind us what the Lord did for us, how he reconciled us to God despite our sins. He brought us back to God through his body, through his blood. We've seen that. But in addition to that, it also reminds us that we're not alone. As the Lord brings you into union with himself, so he brings you into union with others. We're all redeemed by the same blood, the same body. We partake of the same bread, the same cup, Christ. We have the same Savior. And that being the case, how can you look down on others? If you get all that, you can't. We need this truth in our minds at all times. And thankfully, it's been built into the Lord's Supper. So take it seriously. This is something the Lord commands us to do. Not only to remember him, but this is how we preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We do this corporately together as one while we wait for Christ to return, to come back for his body, his bride. So let's pursue this supernatural unity in Christ. It's not natural. But as we show the world how the Lord knits us together, we are, we are testifying to them of the, of the Savior, that he is real, that he is true, that he has come, that he can unite like none other. In this, let the nations be glad, and in this, let God be glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we... We first and foremost have to always remember what you have done for us. As we prepare our hearts for communion, our, our, our hearts testify our old selves. We were lost. We were depraved, wicked, without hope, given over to sin, in total rebellion against you. Yet in light that, you, you showed us grace and mercy. You forgave us through your Son, whom you sent into the world, to be that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, his body given over for our life, his blood given over for our death. Through him, we can live. We can be reconciled. 
we can be saved. We, we have to always remember that, and we thank you for that. That's the foundation for everything, including our unity with one another. Because in addition, Lord, through that work and through this remembrance, we're knit together. You saved us together. You make a new community, a new covenant community, all those redeemed by the Lamb. And indeed, there is no high ground at the foot of the cross. We all stand before him at the same level, lost but found. That's us. So may we come together as one. May we express our unity. May we preserve it, pursue it. May the world see it. And may they come to know that you are the one Savior, the only one that can save. We lift you up in praise. We do that now. In your name we pray. Amen.